Let's pray together. Father, we do want to see Christ plainly standing forth in your word. He is there. We just need you to open up our eyes so that we can behold wonderful things from your law. Incline our hearts to your testimonies and not to dishonest gain. Establish your word to your servants as that which produces reverence for thee. Father, we ask you to do it. In Jesus' name, amen. Some years ago, Susan and I were members of a church that was floundering. I was not on staff there. I was, uh, we were just members, but I did do a good bit of teaching in that church. And in one of the Sunday school classes that I taught, we got to be friends with a married couple that was having some struggles in their marriage. And one day after a Sunday school class that I had taught, the wife in this couple, she was there alone, and she came up to me afterward, and she reached out to, to ask for some help. And so I agreed to reach out to and to, and to meet with her, her husband. They were both members of, of the church along with us. And so he and I met up at this coffee shop, and uh, when we met, he revealed to me exactly what was going on in their marriage and he gave me kind of a feel for things, and it was very clear that he was the problem. He told me that every day after work, four or five days a week, instead of going home after work, he would go out to a bar and have drinks with friends and other people who were there. And he was a workaholic. I think he may have been an alcoholic, but a kind of a functioning one. And he was doing just about everything that he could do to, to deep-six his, his marriage. He never confessed to an affair to me, but there was lots of smoke. And uh, even though we never could get our eyes on a fire. But he did confess to drinking and flirting with other, other women. He had two small children. He had this, his wife. She was terrific. But she was miserable and knew that he was drinking too much and carousing. But he kept doing what he was doing, even though he was, he was breaking her heart with all of this. So I meet with this guy the first time. All this kind of comes out. And, and so I just confronted him, sitting right there. All of this came out, and I said, you know, you can't do this. You can't live like this and follow Jesus. And I, I told him that he wasn't merely risking his wife and his kids, losing his family. He was risking his soul. If he continued on the path that he was on, I told him, it's not the path that leads to life. It's a path that leads to, to judgment. And so he needed to repent. He wasn't really that impressed with what I had to say to him that day. But he did agree to start coming home after, after he finished work and to keep meeting with me for a while. So we, we did that. And for some time we did that. We'd meet at a coffee shop. We'd have kind of a check-in. And we, are you coming home? And, and we would try to do some kind of accountability together and to make sure that he was laying off drinking. This went on for some time. Kind of, we had some stops and some starts. Till one day, his wife calls me up in distress. She says he didn't come home the night before. But about 4 a.m. that morning, she hears a car alarm, car alarm going off in the front of her house. And so she goes outside, and she finds him inside of his car, 
passed out, crashed into the neighbor's tree. And so she got him out by herself, turned the car off by herself, moved the car, avoided the neighbors seeing this, and then she was calling me because she needed some help. She didn't know what to do with him. Clearly he was not responding to what I was trying to, to, to do with him. I felt like I was at the end of what I could do by myself as just a member in the church. And, and he, he was burning his own house down around his ears. And I, I, I couldn't help it. I didn't, know, I didn't know what else to do. And it was, it was clear to me that it was time for the church, our church, to intervene. So I called one of the pastors and told them what was happening in their lives. And um, I said, I thought it's time for the church to intervene here. This has gotten out of hand. It's, you're in the neighbor's yard. This is a public reproach. And so this pastor says, well, he, he'd report up to the senior pastor and then get back to me. We were, this was a, a very, very large church. And so um, he goes off, and not long after that, I got a call back from him. And I was very eager and ready to pursue whatever biblical pastoral response they wanted to do. It looked like it needed to be a, a confrontation, a call to repentance, maybe even pursuing discipline. And the, this pastor called me back, and he says kind of sheepishly to me, he says, we know what the Bible says, but we just can't do that. Yes, we know it's time to pursue discipline. It's time to pursue this guy for the sake of his wife and kids, his family. But we just can't do that. We were in the middle of a big multi-million dollar building campaign. There was all this effort and sweat moving heaven and earth to get this thing going and built. But there was no will to save this family. They were just going to let this guy's house burn down. What happens in a church if the pastors don't have the will to fulfill the ministry that the Lord's called them to? You know, churches don't tend to point themselves in the right direction. God gives to the church pastors and teachers to lead them and to help them. And they could either take them in the wrong direction or the right direction. What happens in a church if the pastors don't have the will to fulfill the ministry that the Lord has called them to? What happens when the shepherds have no will to both preach and to do what the Bible says? The result of that kind of failure in a church is not just an academic question. It's extremely practical. It's the difference between a family failing or a family flourishing. It's the difference between a husband falling away from the faith or a husband being summoned back to the faith. This is not an academic thing. It's a very practical thing. When pastors fail to fulfill their ministry, Real live people, wives, children, and other people suffer. And what's most important, the witness and the ministry of the church are undermined by that failure. That's exactly the issue that Paul's confronting in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 to 8. If you're not there, open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verses 1 to 8. Last time we were in, excuse me, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 to 8. 2 Timothy 4, 
Last time uh, we were in 2 Timothy, we were in chapter 3, and at the very end of chapter 3, Paul tells Timothy that the Bible is the very word of God. If that's true, if the Bible is what Paul has just said that it is in the last verses of chapter 3, then that word has to define every aspect of pastoral ministry in a church. And so in verses 1 through 8 of chapter 4, Paul aims to tell Timothy what he must do if he wants to fulfill the ministry that the Lord has called him to do as pastor. And he's telling Timothy and he's telling us what it takes to fulfill this ministry. And what makes Paul's words all the more poignant in this text is what you just heard a little while ago when Jim read it. Paul knows that he is at the end of his life. He's about to die. And so his fulfillment of his ministry is leading him to the death. And now he's handing on to, to Timothy, his disciple, what he is to do to fulfill his ministry. What he's going to say in verses 1 through 8, he's going to tell Timothy that he's got to come to terms with three different aspects of, of pastoral ministry if he's going to fulfill this ministry. Here's what they are. He's going to talk about the calling of pastoral ministry in verses 1 and 2. He's going to talk about the conflict of pastoral ministry in verses 3 to 5. And then he's going to talk about the completion of pastoral ministry in verses 6 to 8. So the calling of pastoral ministry, the conflict of pastoral ministry, and the completion of pastoral ministry. Ministry. So the first thing here in verses 1 to 2 is the calling of pastoral ministry. Look at verse 1. Paul says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom. For Paul to charge Timothy here in verse 1 is, is a way for him to add solemnity and weight to what he's about to command Timothy. Because he charges Timothy, he says, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, which means that Timothy had better do what Paul is about to tell him to do. Not merely because of th that Paul is watching, but because God the Father and the Lord Jesus himself are watching. Not only are they watching, but they're also enforcing. Look what the text says. It says, in the presence of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, which is obviously a reference to the final judgment, where God is going to settle all accounts and where no one wants to come up short through disobedience to what God has told them to do. And so Paul charges Timothy by Christ's appearing, that's a reference to his second coming, in judgment, he says, by his appearing and by his kingdom, which is Christ's reign over all things, he's charging him by those two things. And now, Paul hasn't even given the command yet. But what he does is he takes an entire verse to wind up to the command. Why? Because he's trying to say that no matter what you do as pastor, Timothy, you must do this or you will answer to God for how you respond to what I'm about to say. So all of verse 1 is a wind-up to the main command. 
What is the calling of pastoral ministry? What is a pastor supposed to do? It's verse 2. Here it is. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Timothy, no matter what you do, you must preach the word. When he talks about the word, I think it encompasses both the Old Testament as it stands written and the apostolic word, which was being delivered to him, in this case, by the Apostle Paul himself. So Paul's saying, look, Timothy, there is a body of revelation that has been given to you, and I'm commanding you before God, you preach it, which means you openly declare the message that God has given. What that means is that a pastor's job, he's not supposed to be preaching his own ideas about life. He's not supposed to preach his thoughts about current events. He's not supposed to turn the pulpit into his own little hobby horse for whatever distraction catches his fancy. He's not supposed to make things up as he goes along. What the pastor must do before God and Christ Jesus is to preach the word of God as it is revealed in Scripture. That's his job. He is a herald of Almighty God. He's not giving his own word. He's giving someone else's word, God's word. If he fails to do that, he will answer to God into Christ Jesus at the judgment. Preaching that word is filled out in this verse. It requires several things. It requires readiness. Look what he says. Be ready in season and out of season. When he says be ready, he's talking about willingness to preach that word. Literally, when it's a good time to do it and when it's a bad time to do it. Meaning, preach the word when people are slapping you on the back after the sermon and saying, great word, preacher. And you preach the word when they're stabbing you in the back and saying, get going, preacher. In other words, we preachers, we don't stick our finger to the wind of human opinion to figure out what we're going to preach. The approval and disapproval of our message will come and go but that approval or lack of it has no impact on the content of our preaching. We preach the word. And we preach it, whether they like it or not. That means aspiring preachers. If you are a man pleaser at heart, you can't be a pastor. You can't do it because you won't do the job if you are unwilling to preach the word when it's out of season. Every pastor knows that you have to say things sometimes that are hard to say because it's hard for people to hear. But we can't fail in this duty if we're to fulfill the ministry that God calls pastors to. We have to preach all of this word no matter what the response is. You preach the word. And so there has to be readiness, which means a willingness to preach in season and out of season. 
But then he also says there has to be confrontation. Look at these two words. He says reprove and rebuke. That word reprove means to express strong disapproval of someone's action. That's what a re to reprove or to, to correct someone means. In this case, this first word, reprove, means you're, you're not only pointing out what they're doing that's wrong, but you're trying to correct them and point them back to the right direction. It's trying to persuade someone to see and to turn from the error of their way. That second word, rebuke, it means something like, it's, it's also to express strong disapproval, but it also, it has the idea of censure in it, to warn them. It's a, it's a strongly negative word. Both of these terms together, though, mean confronting error, both in doctrine and in morals, to the people that you, you speak to, whenever and wherever necessary. Sometimes it may be from behind a pulpit. Sometimes it may be across the table at a coffee shop. That's the pastor's job with the flock. Not because he's high and mighty and perfect and some kind of a, you know, super spiritual moralist. He does it because he wants to lead people away from judgment and to life. That's why you do it. This one's hard today. This reprove and re rebuke thing, it's hard because it's, it's considered impolite. And sometimes it's even considered in our culture unloving to confront someone with error. Many people define love, in fact, as unconditional approval of whatever another person is doing. And if you don't give unconditional approval to whatever another person is doing or believing or saying, then somehow you don't love them. But that's, that's not what the Bible teaches about love, is it? You know, Proverbs chapter 27 and verse 5 says, Better is open rebuke than hidden love. You know what that means? It means open rebuke is better than hidden rebuke. But he doesn't use rebuke in the second clause. He says hidden love. Where he should have said rebuke, he said love. And the reason that he does that is because, according to the writer of Scripture, rebuke can be an expression of love. If I have a cancerous sore on the back of my neck and you see it, it's not loving for you not to point that out to me. It would be disturbing news to me. It wouldn't make me really happy, okay? But it's necessary news for me. And I know that if you point it out to me, it's not because you want to hurt me, but because you want to save me, right? And so it is when we have to confront one another with error. And so it is when a pastor or a preacher must confront error. It's an expression, should be an expression of love, because it's not done to hurt, but to save. And so preaching the word is not just requiring readiness, but also confrontation at times and a willingness to do it, even when people don't want to hear it. But it also requires commanding. Look at that next phrase. Be ready, reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience in teaching. That word exhort means to urge strongly. In essence, it means to command someone to do something. And so that's the difference between preaching and a lecture. 
Preaching is not lecturing. Lecturing is oriented towards explanation and data. Preaching has explanation and data in it. But it's oriented towards command and prohibition. It has an authoritative tone to it because you're commanding people to do things and not to do things. It's exhorting people what they ought to believe and to do. And it issues commands at the end of the day. But all this preaching and and reproving and rebuking and exhorting is supposed to be done in a certain way, and that's in the last phrase. He says, with complete patience in teaching. Which means that the shepherd is not supposed to be harsh and indifferent towards the sheep when he preaches. The pulpit is not a place you come in and try to grind everybody up. Any idiot can do that. God help us if we ever do that. The shepherd's not supposed to be harsh and indifferent to the sheep. He is to be understanding and patient with with the sheep. He is committed to teaching them and to hanging in there with them when they stumble and fall. Notice it says, with complete patience and teaching. The idea of sometimes folks aren't going to measure up. And what's your disposition towards them as a pastor when that happens? Patience. You know the difference between somebody who's trying and falling and somebody who's not, okay? And you're there to cheer them on. When your kid spills milk all over the table, after you've warned him uh, 10 hundred times not to do that, what do you do? Do you get angry and thunder? What's wrong with you, idiot? Why can't you get this right? Or do you say, it's all right, you know, we're going to get this cleaned up, watch out next time, try not to put it so close to the edge of the table, we're learning this, we'll get it, you can do it, let me help you clean this up. In other words, with great patience and instruction or teaching, is, is gonna, it's going to require the, the pastor to not be an angry person. Because one response is angry and alienating, and the other response is constructive and endearing. And that's what a pastor's exhortations and rebukes are supposed to be like. It's supposed to be like we're in this thing together. You're down. Let me help you up. You can do it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to help you. Even if this is a hard word, I'm going to help you. We want to help you. This is why one of the qualifications for a pastor is that he can't be pugnacious, right? We learned that in 1 Timothy. Because he's got to bring confrontation and he's got to do it in such a way that consoles and inspires and not in a way that crushes and discourages people. And you can't do that if you're angry. So this is the work of ministry. You've got to preach the word with great patience and instruction. And it calls for reproof and rebuke and exhortation. So all of you, I know there's aspiring pastors in here. Are you ready to do this work? Are you going to fulfill that kind of a a ministry? If you're going to do that, you have to be aspiring to preach the word in this way. If that's not your aspiration, that's that's not the kind of ministry that the Bible commends. Your aspiration has to be for preaching the word in this way. 
So Paul is exhorting Timothy to come to terms with this calling of pastoral ministry, preaching the word. But in verse 3, he turns to the conflict of pastoral ministry. Everybody look at verse 3. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. When Paul says for, that means he's about to tell Timothy why he just commanded him to preach in season and out of season. He says, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. That word time links, it's, you can't, it's hard to see in English, but it links explicitly back to the word that's translated as out of season. Okay, So he's explaining what it means to, be, to preach the word out of season by saying this time that's coming. The time that is coming is when it will not be a good time for preaching, meaning it won't be a popular message. That time will be marked by people who won't put up with Bible-based exhortations and rebukes. And the reason will be really simple. Because they have itching ears. Which means that they want their itches scratched. They don't want more itches from you. They want you to tell them what they want to hear they will want you to tell them what they are believing and doing already is just fine. Even if they think they are in error or sin, they often like their sin very much, quite thank you. And they don't need meddling with their conscience. Now, I'm saying they and them, but this is really all of us, right? <laughs> this is all of our natural, all of us have this disposition disposition naturally to not want the light shined on us and to be affirmed in whatever it is that we're doing and we don't like to be confronted it's hard and so rather than listen to the word of God that confronts us we often look for teachers who will lay off of what the word of God is saying and tell us happy things things that confirm sinful desires and not that contradict sinful desires and that's what Paul means when he says they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. If this guy won't give, tell me what I want to hear, I'll find somebody who will. Somebody who will tickle my ears. Why do you think the health and wealth gospel is so popular today? Because it tells people that God wants to make them healthy and wealthy. Well, everybody wants to hear that. But it's really lean on telling them about sin and judgment. Nobody wants to hear that, right? It's a regime that tells people what they want to hear, not what they need to hear. But we don't have to go outside to other groups to see this tendency. You can look a little bit closer to home. I would argue that for a generation, our own churches in our denomination were really light on things like divorce. on things that are hard to hear, but that were ravaging families all around us. How many families, how many, don't raise your hand, obviously. How many of you were in a family that you wish some godly man would have showed up at your doorstep and said something to your dad on behalf of your mom and might have fixed something before he blew it all up? 
Pulpits went silent, pastors went silent, and families and witnesses and ministries fell apart. It's hard to say the right thing when there's blowback from the pews from people who don't want to be exposed. So what do people do? They turn away, verse 4, from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Which means, if the gospel message and the Bible message won't confirm me in my beliefs and desires as they are, then I'll find some other story, some other message that will confirm me. Some message of progress that folds my immorality up into uh, some uh, triumphant story. And will affirm me, and I don't have to change, and I can keep right on pursuing what I want to pursue. So people will choose the fiction over the truth. Why? Because fiction that confirms sinful desire is a lot easier than truth that doesn't. And people will follow after fairy tales because they want stories to confirm them and not to interrogate them. If a man decides he wants to leave his wife and go after some other woman who does, who's not his wife, who does that guy want to hear from? The preacher that tells him to repent? Or the preacher that tells him that he can be healthy and wealthy if he just believes hard enough? This is not rocket science. We know why people do this. We know why we do this. That time is coming, Timothy, Paul says. They're not going to want to listen to truth. They're going to want to accumulate teachers who will tell them what they want to hear. So Paul says, verse 5, As for you... Always be sober-minded, enduring suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. There it is. The pastor must be clear-headed, willing to suffer, evangelizing the lost, all these things in order to fulfill what God has called him to do. And he can't leave off of it just because it's not what people maybe want to hear. You know, there's a great story in, in 1 Kings chapter 22 about a prophet named Micaiah. Y'all know this story? You've got this evil king, Ahab. He's the king of Israel. He teams up with the good king, Jehoshaphat of Judah. And they are going to team up together and battle against the king of Aram. But before they go out to battle, evil King Ahab, he doesn't really care about what God thinks, but Jehoshaphat does care about what God thinks. So he says, uh, he says Ahab, we gotta, is there somebody, is there a prophet around here we can ask whether or not we should go up and fight against the king of Aram? And Ahab says, uh, oh yeah, sure, I've got prophets. I've got like four of, 400 of them. <laughs> so he uh, herds in the 400 guys. And he asks them, should we go up and fight against the king of Aram? And the, the 400 guys, all of them, come and say to, to King Ahab and the Jehoshaphat, oh, yeah, go up. The Lord's going to give the king of Aram into your hands. And so Ahab says, see, let's go. Jehoshaphat's like, he's, something's not right here. And he says to him, is there not yet a prophet of the Lord here that we may inquire of him? Meaning, these guys aren't talking for God. Is there somebody here that can talk, speak for God? 
Ahab says, there's yet one man by whom we may inquire of the Lord, Micaiah, the son of Imla, but I hate him. For he never prophesies good concerning me, but evil. Sounds like a child, doesn't he? He doesn't want to know what is, what's true. He wants to know what affirms in him and what he already wants to do. Ahab is one of the most evil figures in all of the Old Testament. And look what he does. He gathers together prophets who tell him what his itching ears want to hear. But Micaiah, the true prophet, comes forward and tells Ahab and Jehoshaphat what they need to hear, which is don't go out because you're going to lose. All the other guys are saying the opposite. Guess what happens? They listen to the majority report. They don't listen to Micaiah. They go out to battle and they get killed. Why? Because they listened to the guys that told them what they wanted to hear and not what they needed to hear. There were a lot more false prophets than there were of the one true prophet. Why is there no shortage of false teachers today? For the same reason that Ahab Ahab had 400 false prophets. It's because there's there's no shortage of false teachers because there's no shortage of people who want to have their ears tickled by sweet talk and preaching. That's just the bottom line. But if those people listen to the sweet talkers, they will find themselves on a path that leads to judgment and destruction. But they will feel good all the way there. Paul's saying to Timothy, Timothy, you have got to embrace the conflict of pastoral ministry, which means sometimes you say things that are jarring to people. And the truth of the matter is, when the people of God hear a confrontation from God, Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. And even though sometimes it's hard, after the initial jarring confrontation, those of you who know the Lord Jesus, you have the spirit, it, it really feels good, doesn't it? It's good. So Paul's saying to Timothy, look, Timothy, you've got to know the calling of this pastoral ministry. You've got to know the conflict of pastoral ministry. And you have to run into it. You have to embrace it. I would like to talk about the completion of pastoral ministry. (laughs) But I am not going to complete that today. So we are going to complete verses 6 through 8 next time let me say this to finish if you're here and you don't know Jesus and all of this sounds strange to you um, you just need to know that what we believe is that God we, we don't believe we're better than anybody else we believe we're sinners and that God has mercifully and graciously called us to himself through the ministrations of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who came from heaven to die for our sins, took the penalty that we deserve, and he was raised up after three days 
and he was taken up into heaven, and he is seated right now at the right hand of God. That's what we believe. We believe he's extended mercy to us and forgiven us. And so that message is for you. It's not just for us. It's for every sinner who wants to come to him and believe in him. You can't have this mercy from Christ through anything that you do. You can't earn it. Jesus earned it for you. You just have to receive it, believe it, repent of your sin, and trust in Christ. That's the message that that we believe. That's the message that Paul is pouring his life out for. That's the message that the Lord Jesus wants you to embrace now. Let me pray for you. Father, I pray that you would use this word to make us more faithful. Father, I feel it standing over me. I'm sure my fellow elders feel it standing over them. I'm sure the aspiring preachers feel it, the weight of it on them. So, Lord, I pray that what you've exposed, that you will um, help us to see, and that what you command us to do, you will also enable us to do. Lord, I pray you'd make us long-suffering and patient with one another. And, uh, Lord, help us not to be harsh and angry, but to be slow to anger. And help us to fulfill this ministry. Help us to do what you've called us to do. Thank you for sheep in this church who love to hear the Bible preached. Lord, we thank you for this season. Every Sunday feels like it's in season here. Father, thank you for as long as this lasts. Lord, would you sustain it? But even if it goes out of season, even maybe not in here, but outside of these walls, and it becomes harder and harder and harder to preach this word and to stand for this word faithfully, I pray you'd just embolden us to be courageous. Help us to do it anyway. Help us to take whatever lumps we have coming for it. I pray that for your sheep, all those who are here who go out to their work, to the office, to school, and they're trying to think about how to bear witness. I pray you'd embolden them and make them fruitful in this great work that you've given us. Father, we ask you to do it in the name of Jesus.